I'm sure the, the, the overnight registrar was uh, extremely frustrated at this point, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> made their fourth attempt at putting in, uh, putting in epidural and again went in fine. Um, and um, they left it at that for the overnight anyway. But it, it still didn't work particularly well for her. She had lots of rescue doses from our rescue protocol, which is another 10 mils of this, the 0.125% pupivacaine. Uh, hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, this week I have a, uh, a new guest on the show. I've got um, Fiona Lear. Did I, did I get that right? Uh, not quite Fiona Lera, but close enough. <laughs> O'Lara. <laughs> yeah. O'Lara. Okay. Um, he's kindly agreed to come and um, have a chat with us about a very interesting um, topic which he gave a presentation to our department on um, uh, uh, last week. And um, it's all based around an interesting case or patient that he um, had to deal with. Um, but before we get stuck into that, Fionn, um, so Fionn's a uh, anaesthetic uh, registrar training in the WA training scheme, and um, uh, but obviously you've got a bit of an accent. It doesn't sound like you come from around these parts. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> How did you end up over here, Fionn? Yeah, so from a bit further afield originally. So um, yeah, I went to university in Cork in Ireland, and I worked there for a little while, so <coughs> did my intern year there, and then... Um, like um, many dozens and even hundreds of Irish um, doctors a year, I, I came over to um, to sunny Australia for um, for uh, what was supposed to be a short spell. It was supposed to be six months to a year, but I'm I'm here now a little over five years and um, and loving yep. it. So yeah, training in anaesthesia here and yeah, yeah, it's good. Mm. Yeah, it was good to have you. And um, uh, yeah, this is really uh, interesting case that you that you discussed last week, um, and I think uh, lots of people will find it quite fascinating. Um, so. Um, probably the best way to just to get stuck into it is if you just describe the case and what happened, and then we can talk about what the aspects of what you know what you've uh, you, you did a bit of research. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, like I said, it's pretty pretty challenging and interesting case that I had. Um, I had a lady coming in for um, an elective cesarean section um, with her <coughs> second baby, and um, she had been seen in our cesarean clinic by one of my other colleagues. Um, who came to tell me about this lady um, basically because she'd been very very traumatized by her first uh, birth experience hmm. um, so she had come in as a prime up in spontaneous labor and um, had requested an epidural for labor analgesia yep um, and I suppose that's where her problem started so it was the usual kind of a thing where it was five o'clock in the morning where she was getting her epidurals in and um, there's a series of events of, of things that didn't quite work so um, uh, she had had um, an attempted uh, uh, combined spinal epidural initially, um, which yep. went in quite well uh, at first, but didn't really get much CSF flowing back. Um, so that was abandoned. And then there was a single shot spinal put in with um, uh, two and a half mils of our of our premix, which is 0.125% bupivacaine with five mics per mil of fentanyl. So kind of a, a relatively you know big dose for for labour analgesia, which would normally provide pretty significant um, analgesia but uh, 10 minutes after that single shot spinal she was still in loads of pain and writhing around um, um, so it didn't really do much then there was an, an epidural went in again after that again went in pretty easily got loss of resistance all that put in 20 mils of our premix in total and again got no relief from that that yeah. now that is unusual mm. so both of those last two yeah I would yeah. have thought oh, everyone so gets yeah. pain relief from that exactly so you know very very big doses so didn't get any relief, relief from that um, so that one was removed, um, 
and um, <laughs> somewhat, uh, yeah, it typically as soon as it was removed, she said it was almost like a light switch. It's like, oh, I can actually feel that kicking in. I'm starting to get comfortable now. So I'm sure the, the, the overnight registrar was uh, extremely frustrated at this point, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> made their fourth attempt at putting in a, putting an epidural. And again, it went in fine. Um, and um, they left it at that for the overnight anyway. But it, it still didn't work particularly well for her. She had lots of rescue doses from our rescue protocol, which is another 10 mils of this, the 0.125% pupivacaine with fentanyl. So she had multiple rescue doses of that. The, the day team came on and one of the consultants went in at about 10 a.m. and put in another epidural, again with a big dose. I think he put down 15 or 20 mils, which provided a little bit of relief for a while, yeah. but didn't really, didn't really cut the mustard. Again, needed multiple, multiple top-up doses throughout the day. And the woman eventually ended up having um, an emergency cesarean section called at about 6 p.m. that evening. Um, yep. um, I think there was just some fetal bradycardias and things. Um, and uh, she had a top-up with 20 mils of the 2% lignocaine. There was 100 mics of fentanyl mixed in with that, and she ended up having um, 75 mics of clonidine as well. And um, she reports having a very bad cesarean experience in that she said she felt a lot of pain. Um, yeah. Nobody was really listening to her. Nobody could believe that she still had so much pain after having so much. Um, so she was understandably quite traumatised um, coming yep. in for her elective cesarean section. Yep. Sounds pretty, you know, sounds like she had a hard, uh, hard day. Yeah. Yeah, so she had a pretty rough run of it, and she was understandably, like I said, uh, you know, traumatized and apprehensive about um, about what we were going to do. So um, um, she came in anyway, and it was myself and uh, one of the one of the fellows who was with us last term were, were doing the list, and um, we had a good chat with her, and had gone through everything. And um, basically, our plan was um, after discussion with her to proceed with the combined spinal epidural um, anesthesia for a cesarean. And, you know, we'd had a chat beforehand about, you know, look, there is the option to do a general anaesthetic if you prefer at any point. If you want to, just let us know. We can do that. We can provide some sedation, etc. But she was pretty keen to, to trial a neuroaxial technique again, um, you know, for, for all the benefits of meeting baby and and, uh, and that kind of thing. Yep. So so that's what we did. So we went and did a, a combined spinal epidural. So um, again, um, it went in very easily. So she's a slim woman. Um, we got lots of resistance, about four centimetres put the spinal needle through the tuhi, um, got CSF flowing freely back um, and put in a normal spinal anaesthetic dose. So we put in two and a half mils of 0.5% um, pupivacaine uh, with 15 mics of fentanyl. Um, and then we threaded the epidural catheter, uh, put in a bit of um, epidural saline for a bit of volume expansion for whatever that's worth and um, and taped everything down and, and um, layered down and, um, and, and moved into the anaesthetic room. Uh, once we get, or once we got through to the theatre, then you know they put in the catheter. Um, um, we put up the little curtain and everything to get things ready, and we decided we checked the block. So, um, and we found the block was uh, only up to about T10, about umbilicus level with ice. Yep. After a decent amount of time, um, and this is always a pretty tricky situation because. Um, you know, she's obviously super anxious and traumatized and looking, yeah. at, looking at us, looking at each other, saying, OK, this isn't really working. And then she's saying to us, oh, is this working? And we're kind of saying, oh, well, <laughs> putting on a bit of a brave face, saying, yeah, yeah, you know, this it could be working. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm sure we've all been in those situations. But um, so we put on the, the timer on the um, anesthetic machine so that we weren't checking every 30 seconds and driving ourselves crazy and checked after five minutes and checked after 10 minutes. And, and the block had just not gotten above T10. Yep. Um, but thankfully, we put in um, an epidural, uh, which we used. Um, so we started topping that up with uh, with two percent lignocaine, 
uh, in incremental doses. So I think we gave five mils and then 10 mils and then another five mils. And basically she ended up needing um, 25 mils before the incision to get her block up above um, T4 level yep. to keep her comfortable. And she needed another five mils before the end of the surgery as well. She was starting to get a bit of pain when they were, they were closing the skin at the end. And it was, it was a pretty quick cesarean as well. Um, you know, the consultant and senior writer on board, I think it only took about, about half an hour or something in total. So yeah. despite the pretty, you know, a decent um, spinal dose and a, and a big epidural dose of local anaesthetic, um, it wore off very quickly and by the time she got to recovery she was in lots of pain and she had no motor block in her lower limbs. Um, yeah, so yeah. pretty much worn off. Okay. Exactly, yeah. 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 So, so uh, and wh what other medical conditions did she have? I'm sure you were about to mention that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I suppose um, what's, what's relevant for this lady is, um, so she had a history of um, um, ADHD, so she's taking some dexamphetamines for that, and she also had a history of um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, yep. which I think might might be the the more relevant thing in this in this situation. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So do you think uh, most anesthetists uh, know about the uh, this described uh, phenomenon of um, local anesthetic problems with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Look, I think it's, it's. I've come across a few in my career, but I'm not sure. I, I don't, I'm not sure how common knowledge it is. Yeah. Look, I, I'm not sure either, and I think you know. Um, let's say from the sample size of the departmental talk last week, I think it, it seemed to be news to about half of the yeah, anaesthetists okay. and the other half seemed to have an idea of it or had an inkling of it. Or, or had heard of it. Had yeah. heard about something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I suppose it's, it's, it's a relatively um, nebulous kind of a concept and it hasn't really been pinned down um, or very well described or, or, or understood. So I think it's pretty understandable that it's not, you know, widely um, yeah. understood by, by anaesthetists at this stage. Yeah. <coughs> Um, do you want to talk to us, tell us about uh, what Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is, uh, although um, <laughs> obviously the interesting part of, for us will be when, when you, you know, tell us about yeah. uh, the, the yeah. local anaesthetic um, problems. Yeah, so look, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, um, look, I'm, I'm not a physician or a rheumatologist, but there's, it's a pretty heterogeneous group of um, different connective tissue disorders, so yep. they've been classified into about, I think there's 13 of them. Um, <coughs> the one that this lady had is the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which it, even though it's the most common, is probably the most poorly defined in that yep. there's a pretty variable mix of different um, clinical phenotypes within this hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, Ehlers-Danlos is much more common in women. I think it's about 20 to 1 is the, is the ratio. Right. And there's an instance of about 1 in 2,500 to 1 in 5,000 um, yeah. within Australia. So relatively common, more common in women. So, you know, relevant obstetric practice for sure. Um, in terms of local anaesthetic, which is what we're getting to, when I when I uh, kind of did a bit of a literature research for this, when I was looking it up afterwards, it seems the first reports came when they were researching Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So back in the kind of late eighties and the nineties, and um, I think it was in Denmark, there was a skin biopsy clinic there that yep. they were um, doing skin bi biopsies, and they noticed that the people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome just really didn't tolerate these skin biopsies. Yeah. This is a clinic that was doing you know thousands of skin biopsies a year, and they just said, "What is going on with these Ehlers-Danlos patients? They're just they don't hack it at all. They're you know the." They put in, you know, lignocaine for the biopsies or cream and it just doesn't seem to work. So anyway, they decided to try and actually research this and and, and try and quantify it. So so they got eight Ellis Danlos patients and matched them with eight controls and did a formal um, assessment of local anaesthetic in them. So they did yep. two different days. They one day they did um, subcutaneous lignocaine and another day they did um, cream. Um, and they found that the the patients with Ellis Danlos syndrome 
um, they got no block at all with Emla um, yep. compared to the controls. And with, with Lignocaine, they did get a block, but it didn't last as long and it didn't go as deep subcutaneously as the patients without Ehlers-Danlos. So they didn't tolerate the, the little needle they had um, going into the skin to the same depth as, um, as the other okay. patients. Yeah. So there's definitely some resistance. Exactly, yeah. Although yeah. it did work, uh, yeah. but nowhere near as effectively. Exactly, yeah. And they've, okay. there's also, they've repeated the study as well, and more recently in the, in the UK, I think some, some plastic surgeons did it, and they, they kind of it did a pretty fancy setup again with lignocaine, and they use lasers um, to try and, you know, elicit kind of a heat response in the skin. And, and, and again, they quantified that with these Ehlers-Danlos patients, the, the local wore off much quicker, and it didn't work as well for them. Yeah. Um, so, so that's been kind of established in, in that story. And then within the dental literature, there's, there's pretty good um, um, data about patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome basically not having great effects with local anaesthetics. Yeah. So they did one pretty big survey with about 900 um, Ehlers-Danlos patients and 900 matched controls. And they said, I think it was a, about three quarters of the Ehlers-Danlos patients reported that they had had um, inadequate analgesia during dental procedures, yeah. which compared to about 10 to 15% in the general population. So significantly higher proportion of them yeah, weren't So what was the percentage rid- of the Ehlers-Danlos ones, sorry? So I think uh, from memory is about 82%. Okay, so that's... So quite high. Yeah, so a majority. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And uh, is this like all, all the different, just the hypermobile type Ehlers-Danlos or just all? So I, I, I think that population was the hyper... I think it was the classical type at that stage, or type three before it'd been changed into hypermobile definition. But I, I, I would have to okay. double check that. <coughs> one. Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, it, so it's kind of been established that it's it, it's definitely a thing. Yeah, it's um, definitely a real thing. Yeah, it? it's definitely yeah. a real thing. You know, these people are definitely suffering and not getting as much of um much of a block. So I just thought it was it was something quite easy to to read up on and just try and figure out okay scientifically yeah. what might actually be going on here. Yeah, and obviously, you know, um, so, so highly relevant to those of us who are you know, doing obstetric anesthesia and analgesia because yeah, um, yeah. we rely heavily on, but, but relevant to any anesthetist really because um, we, I don't know about you, I, we, I love local anesthetics. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and I, uh, yeah. I think, yeah, for me anyway, local anesthetics is one of those drugs that I just thought just worked, right? Like if you just put in enough, it's going to work. It's like if you give somebody enough propofol, they're going to go to sleep. If you put in enough local anesthetic, yeah. they're not going to have pain when you stick in the needle and, you know, it I think there's some people out there who are resistant to propofol. There's another talk. <laughs> <laughs> I've given three syringes by someone who is, and he stared back at me. But um, that's, enough, that's another talk. <laughs> yeah, separate issue. <laughs> so, um, so what's the? Uh, I, know, I remember you last week. You were uh, talking you, that people have tried to look into the mechanism, mm. and uh, you sort of went through all the different sort of theories as to why they are resistant. Yeah, yeah. So the kind of um, the way to kind of break this down is if you look for a local anaesthetic to work, it has to get from from your needle, um, so wherever you inject it, it has to get intracellularly, so it has to get to um, the inside the, um, the nerve, and then once it gets there, it has to act on the receptor. So um, that was the kind of way that I broke it down when I was looking up. So yep. the, the first thing saying, okay, maybe the local anesthetic isn't getting to the right place. So this is a connective tissue disorder, so they may have lax tissues, maybe it's just spreading out and um, distributing elsewhere, um, or with neuroaxial anesthesia, maybe it's not going to the, to the right place. So People have looked into this, so the first thing with subcutaneous injections, say, so like with these skin biopsy clinics, um, they have done studies where they've basically done radioisotope labelling of local anaesthetics. They've injected them into patients' forearms, so again, a group with Ehlers-Danlos and a control group, and they just took um, x-rays and just monitored where 
the local anaesthetic actually spreads and because it has the isotope labeling they could keep an eye on that and um to cut a long story short they basically didn't find any difference so it wasn't yeah. it wasn't like the local anaesthetic it was spreading out more for the yeah. nsms so patients probably probably not related to that yeah, yeah. exactly yeah <coughs> but then you know we don't um always give local anaesthetic subcutaneously and certainly with this case with the, the lady having the cesarean section we were giving um neuraxial anesthesia so so what could be um what could be going on there and there's, there's a couple of theories uh, in this space as well um, so certainly just specific to Ehlers-Danlos um, patients they've much higher rates of having um, Tarlov cysts within their um, uh, within their back basically so um, even yep. though these What's that? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, so these cysts they're little um, um, uh, basically outpouchings of, um, of of Jura that contain CSF so yep. okay. um, so the thing is if you if you stick your spinal needle into them you can get a bit of CSF back um, but even though they probably do communicate with the intrathecal space, that communication might be a lot slower. A lot of the time they can kind of have uh, apparently like a kind of almost like a, um, uh, a, a valve kind of a thing based on based on where they yep. grow out from. So even though they do communicate, it can be a lot slower. So um, people with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome get a lot more of these. So in the, they're, they're out there in the general population. They're, they're pretty common apparently. Um, but generally they tend to be in the sacral area slash lumbosacral area, so probably below where we stick needles most of the time. Yep. Whereas with patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, they get them all the way up the spine, all the way up, they can get them thoracic, cervical. Um, okay. So basically they're more of an issue, more common. Okay, so, so it could be that you, when you're doing your spine, where you're sticking it into one of these and that's why it doesn't spread. Exactly, and that could have yep. been what happened with this lady in her first, way back when her, she had her first baby and her first CSE at five o'clock in the morning when they got a little bit of CSF back, but then it just kind of stopped. That could have been what's happening. I mean, yep. I mean, who knows? Um, so that's definitely one thing. And then um, um, another issue can, not, not generally, not specific to Ehlers-Danlos, but for people with um, connective tissue disorders such as Marfan's and things, you can get these dura lactasia, where again, you get bulging out of, of, your, um, of, of your dura, um, which is relevant for a couple of different reasons. So firstly, it increases your risk of, um, of doing an accidental dural puncture when you're doing, um, say, an epidural. Um, and also it increases your CSF volume. Um, so if you're doing an intrathecal injection, um, it decreases your, um, your the spread. Yeah, the spread yeah. and the onset of the of the drugs. Okay. Yeah. Um, so again, that hasn't been specifically described in Ehlers-Danlos, but certainly in Marfan syndrome um, and yeah. you know potentially other connective tissue disorders. <coughs> and so we're sort of straying off the Ehlers-Danlos mm, story, mm, but um, mm. there is a article in the in the one of the blue book. Um, 2011, 2011 think, yeah. which talks about failed spinals and goes into much more detail about yeah. anatomical reasons and various other things. So if anyone's interested, yeah, yeah, have, a, yeah. have a look at that. Um, so keep going with the Ayla Danlos. Yeah, story. yeah. So I suppose yeah. So then, so that was kind of my first section of things, thinking about okay, maybe the local isn't getting to the right place. So yeah, a couple of things. Maybe maybe it's not, but it probably is. So then it got to the point of thinking right. Well, the second reason that the local might not be working is because it's not working so well on the receptor. Yep. And there has been an interesting study recently done back in I think two thousand eighteen or two thousand and nineteen, where a woman um, presented to hospital for um, an upper limb procedure and she had a, um, a brachial plexus block. I think an interest scalene block 
um, which was done under ultrasound guidance and had a nerve stimulator and they said right this went in really easy we can see the local around 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 all the nerves but she basically got no block in her upper limb and and this woman said to them look I told you beforehand local anesthetic doesn't work for me it's the same as everybody in my family local just doesn't work whenever we go to the dentist it doesn't work we have to have general anesthetic you, you wouldn't listen to me so they said all right this is so weird so, yeah, so it sounds so, like I, I believe her I'm sure that's yeah. probably true <laughs> yeah. so um so anyway she um it sounds like she was sent to um some geneticists within this hospital and they um basically sequenced her and her in her immediate family's uh, exome and they identified a mutation in um in a gene so just to go back a little bit so local anesthetics block um are voltage gated sodium channels yep there are at least nine different subtypes described so 1.1 all the way up to 1.9 and and they basically identified a mutation in this gene uh, that codes for voltage gated sodium channel 1.5 Yep. So they identified, right, there's this specific part on the protein that has been changed or whatever um, fancy genetic stuff happens. They said, right, that actually affects the 3D shape. So it's plausible now with this new protein mix that the local anesthetic might not be able to fit into the channel where we think yeah. it fits and, yep. and blocks it. So this is the first time that there's been kind of like an objective thing saying, right, okay, this these channels are actually different. Yeah. Now, this hasn't been... Uh, the, this family didn't have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I should say. Yeah. Um, but it is the first kind of thing that said, right, there is something here that we found that the local anesthetic yeah. doesn't work so much. So, so the current, I mean, it sounds like they have, no one's done this in Ehlers-Danlos patients, but the current theory is, I mean, it certainly makes sense because, you know, subcutaneous uh, spread can't be, you know, the fact that yeah. that doesn't work can't be explained by the other two things you talked about, like mm. um, the, the, the cysts and uh, things like that, that they must have something similar yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and yeah th this is quite interesting because you know there was um th there was a case that was published i think just earlier this year or late last year from the uk of um of a woman again with ehlers-danlos syndrome who presented for a, a cesarean section and had an accidental dural puncture and um had yep. her um had an intrathecal catheter placed yep and she ended up needing you know huge doses of intrathecal um local anesthetic in order to get a block um so i think um it was something like six and a half mils of her, her 0.5 percent pupivacaine. Yeah. Um, which you know, which is, is three times in all day. Exactly. So that would usually be a total spinal. Exactly. It make us dilated, very very nervous. Dilated pupils and not yeah. breathing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they they published their findings um, and uh, yeah. So it's just just very interesting and um, you know I think it's something that's definitely out there and yeah. it's something that, that 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 is good for us to be aware about and yeah. Yep. Yeah. So if there's any um, buddings. Uh, uh, Scientists in the neurological uh, neuroscience world listening in. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Here's a good research project. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think there's that many listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Mum, if you're listening, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell your friend. <laughs> okay, so, um, so thanks for that, Fionn. So, what what was you reckon the take for those of us working, um, you know, on the on the shop floor? What are the take home messages? Yeah, I suppose. Look. Um, I suppose just to believe people, like you know, it, it definitely exists, and if they if they tell you reliably, oh look, um, local anaesthetic doesn't work for me, I always struggle, then just you know, um, believe them, I suppose, yeah. um, and then just you know, come up with a, a a plan as to to what you're going to do differently, and you know, there's no kind of accepted guidelines or recommendations from any of the big societies about you know. Uh, 
how to provide anesthesia or even how to obstetric how to manage um, patients with ehlers Danlos syndrome from an obstetric point of view there's no like consensus statement or anything about what yeah, they actually yeah. do because you know we're still kind of figuring it out but i suppose just believe people um come up with a bit of a plan so you know the cse worked quite well for us in this situation it gave us the backup option and then just you know to communicate with the patients and just say look you know this is what to expect this is what's normal this is what isn't normal just yeah. talk to us if if it becomes too much you know yep. like for a cesarean you know you can do a general anesthetic it's not you know it's yep. not it's not completely unreasonable you know yeah so um, yeah i agree yeah i think you know we shouldn't be afraid of general anesthetic if if it's uh, needed and yeah even if everything seems to be completely straightforward and it should work if it if it looks like it's not working just yeah just believe them and yeah exactly uh, you know um and just um, yeah i think to, to reframe it as well because uh, you know i think a lot of the time it's um it's not a failure you haven't failed you haven't failed and, and the it's woman hasn't a, failed either like no, you know it's just it's just happened and yeah. um, it is it is real if it's yeah. a, so and um, you just gotta yeah. move on i think that's a yeah i think that's an important thing to um to um to absolve the the women from from guilt for having a, a yeah. general anesthetic cesarean you know yeah oh, yeah i, I agree yeah. 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 And, yeah and and also like some of us you know you, you do feel a sense, sort of sense of failure why well, I should be I should be able to get this to work. Exactly, everyone's yeah. expecting me, everyone's mm. expecting me to be good at my job and um it I feel bad if I've done yeah. a, uh, now some sort of anesthetic technique mm. and it seems to be really shoddy. Yeah. And, and everyone's uh, standing around with their scrubs <laughs> and the nurse is asking you can she prep and you're saying well, Yeah, and, and, and you're, yeah. you're causing a delay and there's all yeah. these other sort of uh, human factors at play um, mm. yeah. where you really want it to work mm. uh, and you can talk yourself into it. But if mm. it's if it isn't working, it's not yeah. working. Yeah. 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 Um Good. All right. Thanks for that. Yeah. We'll have to uh, we'll have to reconvene in a few months and do a prep for one. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, see you. <laughs>